Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. You can find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan, and you can follow us on SoundCloud as well, soundcloud.com slash matchpointcanada. Well, it's obviously a very quick turnaround when you finish the clay court season. We delve quickly into the grass, and suddenly we're only a week away uh, from our third Grand Slam of the season coming up at Wimbledon. Uh, Mike, the grass court season is alive and well, and already we're seeing some great results from Canadians like Felix Auger-Aliassim. But I think for you, you mentioned before we got on the episode, uh, you get a special feeling anytime you see tennis back on a grass court. Yeah, this is my almost favorite time of year, I would have to say, as a, as a tennis fan, first and foremost, and in terms of growing up as a kid, what hooked me on the sport, uh, the first memories I have of really watching tennis were from Wimbledon and those grass court uh, tennis courts that just grab your eye when you're watching on TV. They're just so different. Uh, the way you've got the lines sort of going up and down on the screen, uh, you know, vertically and uh, the all-white tennis clothes that the players are, are, are wearing. It's just visually, it grabs your attention. And, uh, you know, as a kid, again, we'd be on holiday, summer holiday, and my family would be heading out, you know, going to the beach or, or something like that, and I would more often than not say, you know what, I'm just going to stay behind. I don't care what it's like outside. And this is me at, like, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, and what kid wants to stay inside and, and watch, like, sports on TV in the middle of the summer? But that's what my, my preference was to, to do. It was even that that intro music on breakfast at Wimbledon that just kind of gave me chills as I was watching. And then some of those, you know, epic encounters for me as a kid, it was like Becker and Edberg. It was Sampras, Agassi. Um, You know, those are matches that are just so ingrained in my consciousness and hooked me on the sport forever. And I think, you know, we're always talking about things, assuming our listeners are always, you know, grown up and adults. And it's easy to forget what an impact the sport has on kids and and bringing them into the fold. And for me, it was always breakfast at Wimbledon. Yeah, look, uh, I grew up on the tennis courts uh, in Kingston, Ontario, and and spent a lot of my summers at the Kingston Tennis Club uh, every morning, whether it was doing summer tennis camps and then just playing on the weekends as well in the mornings. And I have just vivid memories of uh, come July uh, being part of the summer camps. And then right after that, running over to the clubhouse because I knew the tennis was going to be on inside the clubhouse and it was always the grass courts. And so for me, it started in the 90s when I really got into it, uh, still a bit younger, but Sampras Agassi, that you know, budding rivalry. And uh, my brother's favorite player was always Pete Sampras. And so I would go against him and cheer for Agassi. Everyone did that. You were either in one camp <laughs> exactly, or the other, right? Because right. they were such polar opposites in terms of their game and personality. Uh, some things never change, right? And now it's Federer versus Nadal. And of course, seeing Roger Federer's breakthrough moment, 2003, his first Wimbledon title. And he's parlayed that into eight, which is just incredible. And then probably uh, the most memorable match for me coming at Wimbledon 2008 uh, with Nadal. Federer, which uh, many point to as maybe the greatest match of all time. But some, some of my, sorry, some of my uh, matches that stand out to me are when the, the underdogs, you know, yeah. end up winning it or players that have been so close time and time again. So on the women's side, it was uh, Jana Novotna who had, uh, you know, lost two finals. And then finally in 1998, you thought it was not going to happen now. And she has that incredible run. Or on the men's side, Goran Ivanisevic, who yes. made uh, three finals before finally winning it. In 2001, that was one of those spillover to Monday where the the crowd was packed with just, you know, the regular, you know, people who could afford to sort of get in on that special day and watch him beat Pat Pat Rafter in an epic match. And so for me, it was really great to see these guys and girls who fought so hard to have yet another moment 
and and ultimately have it later in their careers was so special to uh, to watch as a fan back then. No kidding, uh, Goran Ivanovic. That was one of those absolute classic victories. Sometimes you can have the surprise underdog on grass. We know the serve plays. Uh, we know our guest from a couple weeks ago, Kevin Anderson. Uh, so much success reaching Wimbledon final last year. Uh, but uh, this past week, we'll talk about the Canadians because Felix Ojeeliasim. Uh, we haven't spoken about him as a grass court player. We've spoken about him as a dominant clay court player. I think it's time to just pencil him in as an all-around terrific tennis player uh, reaching the semifinals uh, of Queens uh, before bowing out to the eventual champion 37 year old Feliciano Lopez and uh, it just gives you confidence that Felix on any stage on any surface at any tournament is comfortable playing against and giving himself a shot to beat anybody yeah it absolutely gives you confidence in that he can do damage now on on any surface he's an all-surface threat for Canada, which we've never really had before. And and not just in Canada, but how many players can claim to be and show that they're comfortable on clay, on hard court, and on grass. So we're truly, you know, blessed in that sense that he's emerging at only 18 years old and showing a prowess and a level of comfort on all three of those surfaces. I mean, if we go back to earlier in the season, he played a lot of clay, and we were wondering how that would transition to the hard courts, and then he had that great run making the semifinals in Miami, and then we wondered, okay, well, how is that uh, now going to transition as we're coming on, you know, back onto clay and now onto grass, and especially that he never played a pro-level grass court tournament. My expectations for him were definitely tempered, uh, you know, give the kid a chance to get his feet wet a little bit. But no, what does he do? He goes off and makes the finals in Stuttgart, uh, third final of the year already. And and I know how eager he must be to get that first ATP trophy. And it's coming at some point, obviously, the way he's been playing. And then he follows it up with, uh, you know, as we just uh, mentioned, a semifinal showing uh, as well on, on the grass this uh, most recent week at Queens. Terrific stuff. I mean, there's just the sky is the limit for this kid. And what is it about his game that is making him, do you think, such a threat, regardless of the terrain? That's a good question. I, I don't think there's any structure of his game and his playing style that, that lends himself to say, oh, he's more of a clay court player because he's such a grinder with great lateral movement. He does have great lateral movement and can play in long rallies, but he can dictate off the forehand wing. And we've seen powerful players who, who get that serve forehand combo really going uh, do well on grass. Uh, we see his game obviously lend itself to hard court, which I think he grew up playing a lot. Uh, there's really not that many wrinkles in his game. And normally, especially when you're 18 years old, there's normally something we can point to for a player that, oh, you really, really have to work on that. Oh, he's really going to have to work on his backhand. He has to work on his volleys. I don't really see that with Felix. It's more like honing and polishing little things. It's like, yes, our, already the backhand is great, but it could be a bit better. I remember when Milos Raonic was coming up, uh, a young teenager with all this potential, uh, but that was a narrative for at least a couple of years where people were saying, Raonic has a great game. He has to improve his backhand. It's sort of a weak point. Uh, he has to improve his volleys, which he did. It feels like Felix is just light years ahead already he, he's playing you know as well if not better uh than some of the 22 23 year olds on tour and uh i would have forgiven him if he lost in the first round of this tournament grigor dimitrov to start your tournament very difficult nick kyrgios uh, we'll, we'll talk about him but that's a big three set win and he's just in stefano Tsitsipas's head right now because he dominates him in juniors and then at the main stage uh continues to beat him 
And Tsitsipas heaped a ton of praise after uh, the loss there as well. He is, he is so much in Tsitsipas's head <laughs> yeah. that Stefano Tsitsipas, I believe now, is the fan club president for Felix Oje Aliassime. Right. After those comments that he made, I mean, he was just gushing, going over the top. I've never heard, really, another player uh, be so, you know, positive and, and just, you know, overwhelming in the praise as Tsitsipas was in that losing press conference talking about, uh, you know, what a great player Felix is, how he's a better player than him, how he expects he can win multiple Grand Slams. This is a kid who's only ever played one main draw Grand Slam match yeah. in his career so far, and and Stefanos is, is saying all these things. So, I mean, first of all, kudos uh, to him for being so, um, you know, overwhelmingly positive in those comments. How often do you see a losing player talk like that, you know, or anything close to that about their opponent. Um, but uh, it, to me, it's surprising because um, it, it's almost like Stefanos is saying, I, I don't believe I can beat this player. And, and how often do you hear, uh, you know, a professional tennis player want to admit that? Yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly rare. You really only see it uh, maybe when a player suffers a loss to, you know, a Fed, a Fed Nadal right. or Djokovic, not a, a player who's just 18 years old and inside the top 25 and, and moving up, obviously, rapidly. But uh, Pass, I hope he wasn't just blowing smoke. I don't think so. I don't uh, think so he, either. He hasn't won a match against Felix, so why would he uh, be saying these things if he didn't believe them? But he, he said he thinks uh, Felix can win multiple grand slams. And uh, it, it sounds like he was being honest in that post-match press conference. We'll talk a little bit about the winner because uh, you got to give a lot of credit to Feliciano Lopez. He was ranked 113th coming into this event, uh, but he won it two years ago as well. This guy simply loves the Fever Tree Championships, and there's an aspect to his game that seems to play up on the grass where his backhand is maybe a bit of a weakness on other surfaces. He's got that stab slice, which is really good on the grass court because it keeps the ball really low, and when he's serving well, he can go on a nice little run. Yeah, and he's got the serve to go with it. How often do we end up talking about what a great weekend a 37-year-old had on the ATP Tour, and it's not Roger Federer, right? Yeah. Like, Federer, who also won this week in Halle on grass, has been kind of pushed aside, like, oh, yeah, okay, a 10th title for Federer, <laughs> right? Of course he did. Uh, but pushed to the side by Feliciano uh, Lopez. So good on him. I mean, I had the impression that his career was kind of winding down. Yep. He's the tournament director in Madrid. You know, he's kind of got that set up for the future. And here he is now back up to number 53 in the singles rankings. And he didn't just do it in singles. And because of rain delays, he ended up having to play multiple singles matches in a day. And he also had a real deep run winning the uh, the title in doubles too. So he was literally pulling double duty, sometimes triple duty, at 37 years old, and and look at him come through, you know, on top in both of those. So just a phenomenal week of tennis for him. Uh, so even though he beat Milos and he beat Felix, I think we can forgive him uh, and and say, hey, job well done. Yeah, absolutely. And pretty special uh, who he won the doubles title with, of course, Andy Murray. And if uh, we go back five months ago at the Australian Open, uh, you know, we had a retirement video with a bunch of players saying like, oh, good luck in your future endeavors. Yeah. And this guy's back on the court winning doubles titles. Thought he was done. Looked he, like he was going to be finished, right? Yeah. Even he <laughs> believed he was going to be retired. Mm hmm. Uh, so it's great. He said he is pain-free in the hip. I, I don't think he has any intentions uh, to play singles at Wimbledon. That no. that won't happen. Uh, stick with doubles for now. But the fact that he is back on the court uh, well enough to not only play but win a doubles title, uh, first of all, speaks to the incredible talent and skill of Andy Murray. Uh, I feel like he's often been in the shadow of the other big three, but we forget he was also a dominant world number one with a few grand slams. And, and Wimbledon was probably... 
uh, the ultimate breakthrough for him, uh, the first Brit to win it in so many years. So it's going to be so special to see him at the All England Club. I know he's going to get an incredibly warm embrace from the crowd there. And you wonder if he can take care of his body and kind of ease his way back uh, through the summer and fall months and just spend that more training that maybe he can get back on the single circuit. It's not yeah. out of the realm of possibility. And pain-free is just so wonderful to see because even before he you know, pulled the plug at the start of this year, opting to go and have that other you know, surgery that he was very worried about, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, he's been a shell of himself, hobbling out there in so much visible pain in between yeah. points on the court. I mean, it's been just so difficult to watch that. And so to hear him say, hey, I'm pain-free, that's the best. Even if he had gotten blown out in doubles against the, the number one seeds in the opening round, pain-free, that's a bonus, that's a positive. And here he is going all the way and winning. He's never been a doubles guy, really. I mean, his record coming in in doubles was 67 and 71. So now with this tournament win, he's, he's at 500 in terms of his doubles career. Two previous titles with his brother, who is, you know, definitely known as a, a great doubles player yep. on the ATP Tour. And that last title was back in 2011. So who would have thought he comes back after five months away, he's got a metal hip, you know, very little, you know, practice time, no match time. And he, and he pulls off a, a tournament victory with, with Lopez. So that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, good one for the old guys. Yep. And um, I don't know about you, but even myself, when I play, you know, in my men's rec league hockey or I play tennis and I've had an extended break, I find sometimes I forget my old, like, bad habits, you know, and I yeah. almost come back that first match back or that first week back and I'm playing better than I have in, in recent memory. And I wonder if that's part of it, too. He's just so excited to be back out there, super enthusiastic, happy to be pain-free. And just letting the racket do the talking, and it, it spoke volumes this week. Yeah, I think the ability to maybe get on the court with a clear conscience uh, about playing, maybe not putting so much pressure on himself, too. Uh, you think of arriving at the Australian Open, trying to grind his way through a brutal practice match with Novak Djokovic before that event, before admitting to himself, I can't do this anymore, uh, and how much changes in five months when, you know, uh, any result here, I, I think, is great as he arrives at Queen's Club, so you're playing with that clear conscience. We saw it with Roger Federer a couple of years ago, coming back off six months from the back injury and just playing freely, and uh, some great things can happen, obviously. these Special are players. Special, special players. Yes, special players. Special circumstances. I'm pretty excited now to see who he ends up teaming with in uh, mixed doubles at Wimbledon, because there's been a lot of chatter about that, mm -hmm. and he's bringing a whole lot of attention to a mixed doubles draw that, you know, normally, let's be honest, doesn't get a, a whole lot of headlines. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of female players that have been chirping up, sort of like, hey, pick me, pick me. Yeah. There's been others who've already turned him down, like uh, Christina Mladenovic, who said, like, look, talk to my coaching staff. Don't think it's a good idea to play singles, women's doubles, and push it with the mixed doubles. Yeah. But, you know, flattered with the offer. Uh, Maria Sharapova was kind of tweeting out there, uh, sort of hinting that that would be special for her, although Andy kind of shot that one down quickly enough. Uh, he's going to have lots of choices. It'll be interesting to see who he ends up with. And my goodness, the support he's going to get and whoever he plays with is going to be, if they're not British, I mean, maybe it'll be Joe Conta, but even if she's not British, going to be treated as if she's a hometown favorite, whoever he picks. No kidding. It's, it's nice to get uh, some great fanfare for the doubles once in a while, especially mixed doubles, uh, fill the crowds, which Andy Murray certainly will do. And uh, we know his doubles partner for Wimbledon on the men's side will be Pierre, who's her bear, who's an excellent doubles player in his own right. So uh, that will be a great combination to watch. And it's obviously spectacular to see him uh, back on the court. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. Find Mike at 
pro tennis fan. Well, we should probably discuss Halla and the other 37-year-old. Uh, Roger Federer capturing his 10th title in Halla and in doing so becoming just the second player in the men's open era to own 10 titles at a single event. The other, of course, Rafael Nadal. So much dominance on a variety of clay court events. Uh, but just so, so ridiculous, so impressive. 102 titles. I brought this up on Twitter that it's not inconceivable that Roger Federer could chase down Jimmy Connors for that singles title record of 109. And that seemed like a record that was maybe pretty unfathomable that one could reach it. Yeah, if you look back to that sort of period of time where he was slamless between 2012 and 2017, you know, the tournament victories were starting to, you know, diminish for Roger. And we were wondering if we'd ever see him hoist another slam again, even though he was still winning, you know, some other tournaments. But yeah. uh, he's really flipped that switch these last two years. And and I wouldn't have guessed. I, w- I would have thought for the longest time there, no, it doesn't seem to me like he's going to be able to catch Jimmy Connors at 109, which is just a staggering number, really. Uh, but now he's seven back. He's got the best record in terms of winning percentage on the men's tour so far in 2019. It's, I believe, 32-4, and which is just ridiculous. Uh, He's got three titles this year, the first on the ATP Tour to get to that mark as well. Uh, And I'm thinking right now, favorite for Wimbledon. I mean, maybe you put Novak Djokovic up there with them, but Novak's not really playing any official grass court tournaments. He's playing in an exhibition uh, leading it up to it. But uh, to me, the way Federer's played... And the way he is now back on his favorite surface, showing no, you know, extra wear and tear from playing that clay court season. uh, I I think he's got to be considered the favorite. Certainly one or two for me. And uh, the seeding system at Wimbledon is, of course, the only one that's actually different from all other Grand Slams. They take in a variety of factors, uh, your grass court pedigree and all that. They have a whole system. Uh, It's math that determines the seedings nothing else and actually that has Federer jumping up to number two and Rafael Nadal now third because Federer won the title at Halla so that's a bit of an advantage uh, to have that second seed next to his name for me I think I have Novak one and Federer two and Nadal three really the order of the seeds right now yeah but but after those two it really drops for me you know Nadal on grass hasn't had the same results these last few years and you go down the list beyond that I mean Milos, if he's healthy, Kevin Anderson, but he's just coming back to the tour and hasn't really had much match play under his belt. That's right. Felix is suddenly generating some buzz as a potential. I know the odds are good if you ever look at that sort of thing, but he's just 18. And again, he's never really, you know, had the best of five at a slam uh, experience. So I think that's putting a whole lot of pressure on him. So aside from Roger Novak, I think I'd, I'd be absolutely shocked if it was anyone else standing at the end of it. Um, that, that being said, um, hey, let's just wait and see, right? We still have another week or so, see what happens, how people are rounding into form, what the draws look like. I, I know that that sort of special formula at Wimbledon ticks a lot of people off, but as you said, it's not Roger's fault that he's being seated second. That is the formula. Yep. Way back when, I feel like it was a lot more arbitrary. I feel like they would sort of, mm-hmm. ah, well, Rafter on grass or Becker's back playing on grass or right. Dayton Hewitt, let's you know move them up a little bit. Uh, kind of like, a, yeah, just a random sort of uh, you know draw in a sense. Now at least there is this formula. Players know to expect it, and whether you agree with it or not, you know it's coming, so there's no 
there's no way around it. Yeah. And look, if you look back at Roger Federer losing in Wimbledon last year, look at what it took. It took 15-13 in the fifth set from Kevin Anderson. It took that level of performance and him saving a set point in the third set. When someone beats Roger Federer, it's by a very, very narrow margin. And the margins, I think, are even smaller on grass because he's so comfortable just producing hold after hold after hold on his serve that, uh, yeah, I agree that if he's not the favorite, it's Novak, but it's those two. And some other names who have been the grass court threats in the past outside of, you know, those two and sometimes Rafael Nadal, guys like Marin Cilic just aren't in form right now. We haven't seen good play from Cilic for the past couple of years. And Milos Raonic remains a question mark uh, just because he hasn't played that much this season. And another one, actually, and maybe we want to talk about him, is Juan Martín Del Potro, who I would have yeah. put in that category. That match last year was just phenomenal. And, um, and and unfortunately and regrettably and, and, oh, God, your heart just goes out. Like all of tennis, all of the tennis community, I think, collectively, we feel awful for this guy that he suffered again another pretty serious injury. Yeah, so right after actually uh, beating Denis Shapovalov, uh, playing at Queen's Club, he was forced to withdraw and subsequently have knee surgery. And uh, I don't even know the timeline for a potential return, but it sounds like a long rehab and recovery. And you wonder if someone of his age can do this, given, you know, the two wrist surgeries being out essentially two years, the problems again at the end of last year with, with the knee, which kept him out of Australia. So he was out for the first few months of the season again so there's really no guarantee that he gets back on the tour and no one would blame him at all if he uh, decides to step away for good and and retire but uh, I was kind of looking at some of his numbers and wondering to myself is Juan Martin Del Potro as his numbers stand right now a Hall of Famer it's a good question I mean he's a a one-time Grand Slam champion there are other one-time Slam champions that are in the Hall of Fame yeah uh if it weren't for the injuries over the years, as you've mentioned several of them, I, I maybe he would have more, but he certainly would have got deep into more Grand Slam draws. That's that's for sure with uh, the game that he's got and that huge forehand. Right. Um, he's got 22 career titles. He's got that Masters 1000 from a year ago in Indian Wells, which are impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. To me, he would be like sort of on, on the bubble, I guess. Yeah. And as much as he's one of the, the nicest guys on the tour, and he's super complimentary of other players, and he's just very gracious, win, defeat, whatever. I mean, that doesn't get you into the hall. I think that's a nice, you know, addition to whatever you've accomplished on the court. Right. Uh, and But we can't give him credit for those Grand Slams he missed and what he might have done. Um, so that, to me, is uh, it would be sort of on the on the fence and would love to see him be able to come. I just want to see the guy finish his career, whenever that is, on his own terms. Yeah. And, uh, you know, find me someone that loves the sport of tennis more than Juan Martin Del Potro because many people, I think, after this many injuries would just say, that's it, tap out. You know, I can't do it anymore. Even on one of the previous ones, remarkable that he's willing to go through all of that rehab again to get himself physically ready to step back into the game. And every time he seems to step back in, it's just like, boom, he's playing like he's in the top 10 again. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah, and I, I honestly think he might be the biggest fan favorite outside of the big three, maybe if you call it big four with Andy Murray, he is beloved kind of across the tour amongst uh, not only his fellow competitors on the ATP, but fans just flock to 
this player to watch him. Uh, such a such a lovely personality, just that booming forehand that uh, we will not forget if this is the last we've seen of him. And yeah, to me, certainly on the cusp of the Hall of Fame. Andy Roddick made the Hall of Fame with one Grand Slam title. Uh, I think uh, Juan Martín del Potro, in my eyes, uh, would belong. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will get over to the women's side. Actually, before we do that, uh, we should we should Shapo? talk about Denis Shapovalov sure, because we'll I, I mentioned Delpo beating Shapovalov, and uh, this has turned into a tough, tough stretch. Uh, initially, I thought, okay, a little rusty on the clay. Clay is in his best surface. Couple losses there. Disappointment at the French Open. Let's regroup for ga- grass. But uh, now with this loss to Delpo, uh, Jan Leonard Struff just keeps beating him. He's dropped eight of ten, and this uh, this has become really an extended slump. Yeah, he's in a funk, and I mean, players are going to go through these, and this is, uh, you know, something that Dennis is going to experience at some point in his career. How does he bounce back from that now? What is he going to retool, do differently, or is he going to keep coming at it from the same perspective and, and leave his game unchanged? Who is he potentially going to bring into the mix or who maybe needs to leave the mix? I mean, he switched coaches after that semifinal run in Miami, did he not? Which seemed at the time like a strange move to make to uh, part ways with Rob Steckley hasn't seen uh, it go well since that point in time, truthfully. And um, I I just think he's got to diversify a little bit. I think he's got to come at it from another angle. And if it's not working, okay, what's what's plan B here? And what are some other voices that might be able to help me construct a plan B? Yeah, and I think uh, plan B is... Uh, really needs to be adapted on the tennis court, specifically finding solutions when the game is off. I think a lot of people who are watching right now, if, if you follow social media, and sort of getting frustrated by Dennis's results is they feel like he's pulling the trigger too soon in rallies, trying for winners too early, and then the unforced errors pile up, and we see him lose matches to players where you feel like maybe he was uh, the better talent on the court but isn't putting it together uh, with the correct decision-making. And as you mentioned, it was it was a bit of an unusual coaching change when Rob Steckley left because it's odd when a, a coach leaves after a great result, after you've had a good stretch of play. Uh, Adriano Fuorivia is the coach right now, and I know he coached him during his junior years. I'm not placing blame at a coach for a player being in a slump, but... Uh, Something's going to have to click soon for Dennis because I don't want to see an early exit at Wimbledon on a surface where I I think he could certainly fare well. Hopefully he doesn't get Struff in the first round at at Wimbledon. (laughs) Struff is just giving him fits, right? Just giving him fits. I think uh, he's won the last three encounters. He beat him at Stuttgart, beat him at the French, and uh, I think he had another victory on clay at one point as well. So it's uh, Struff uh, has definitely been a part of the problem for him, but uh, eight of ten matches lost now for Shapo. We hope he turns it around. Uh, Milos Raonic for me, it's just nice to see him back on the court. I think quarterfinals at Queens is fine given the layoff and and missing the play in the French Open uh, to get back on uh, his favorite surface, win a couple matches, get his feet wet, and hopefully be ready for Wimbledon. Twice denied, though, seeing Milos go up against Felix Auger-Aliassime on grass, which I was pretty uh, pretty stoked for, both in uh, Stuttgart and then at Queens. Yeah. Um, but I hope that they're far apart in a Grand Slam draw. I don't mind seeing it outside of a slam, but as a Canadian, uh, I got to say, in the, in the slams, unless it's going to be like deep, you know, like a quarter, a semi, something right. like that, uh, please, you know, tennis gods, distance, chapeau, Raonic, and, and Felix for us uh, at the uh, Wimbledon draw. Yes, couldn't agree more. We will go over to the women's side uh, where we had a couple of events. We'll start with the May- Mallorca Open before we get to the big story, which is Ashley Barty. Sophia Cannon be- beating Belen- uh, Belinda Bencic in the final there in a tough three sets. Both players having a great season. We've talked about Belinda Bencic and her ability 
against uh, top, top players getting big wins. But uh, for me, Sophia Cannon, her breakout moment came uh, not long ago at the French Open, beating Serena Williams. And, you know, how much confidence can you get from a win like that, beating, you know, probably the greatest women's player of all time at a Grand Slam? And uh, something like that is just going to build confidence. And great to see her pick up her second career title. Uh, yeah, that, that victory by Cannon in, in Paris. I mean, you don't put an asterisk next to it. She beat her, of course. Yeah. Serena wasn't in uh, the greatest form on the court in that event and hadn't had much lead in, of course. But still, for Kennan to be able to do that, and at 20 years old, I mean, she would have grown up absolutely uh, following Serena's career all the way through. So just a huge victory for her there, being able to keep her composure late in that match and not allow Serena to get back into it and turn the tables. Uh, and here she is building on that, you know, not just having a big moment and then sort of, you know, falling back down, mm-hmm. but continuing that progression and, uh, and beating Bencic, who's been one of the most informed uh, women on the WTA this season, a very resurgent Belinda Bencic, who herself is only 22, 23 years old. Uh, both of these young players are, are having a fantastic year. Kennan, to me, is the more surprising of the two. Yes. Uh, she's really having her coming out party so far in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Belinda Bencic uh, solidly right now in the top 15, 13th in the world. You wonder if she can break her way into the top 10 before the season is is out. Uh, we will go over to Birmingham, where the biggest story in the WTA, we have a new world number one, Ashley Barty beating Julia Gerges, capturing her third title of 2019, and uh, now takes over that world number one ranking. So impressive from the French Open champion, and uh, we've talked about parity on the women's side so often. We had that lengthy stretch, I think 18 straight singles events uh, with different winners, uh, but now we have a, a top player really asserting herself on the WTA. Ashley Barty, I can't think of a more deserving world number one, backing up a French Open title and going to the grass and winning a big uh, title in Birmingham. Yeah, who saw it coming on the clay? Didn't think Barty was yet there on clay and and proved everybody wrong. Uh, And then to transition to grass and, and again, have a wonderful tournament and uh, and get through a tough player in Julia Gurgis, who's got a big serve and and plays well on grass also. it's just crazy to me. Another number one. Will this one have any more longevity? Uh, I mean, I feel like we've been through so many since Serena Williams went off on her uh, maternity leave, so to speak, uh, from, you know, Petra Kvitova, Halep, Wozniacki, uh, Osaka most recently, obviously. I'm probably forgetting one or two in there, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if Ashley Barty is the one that can consolidate it for uh, some time. I mean, Osaka was there for a little while, obviously. She was, yeah. And held two slams in a row, which was, you know, extremely impressive. Yep. The pressure, I think, was starting to get to Osaka. You could see it. She was carrying that burden yes. around very uncomfortably in recent months and, and just has hasn't had the results to really sustain that number one position. So it's not surprising to me. And then you've got Barty who comes along, wins a slam, another tournament now, uh, you know, having a great, great season. And we'll see what she does next. I mean, she's pulled out this week with uh, somewhat of a recurring arm uh, issue, as she's mentioned. So she's not playing uh, this week. We'll see her back at, at Wimbledon and uh, be interesting to see. Do we have another back-to-back slam winner on the women's tour with Ashley Barty? You got to put her up there in your top five right now in terms of Wimbledon contenders. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Wimbledon will be a bit fascinating on the women's side. I, I don't even know where to start in terms of <laughs> ranking the field on that one, but obviously Barty's asserted herself as definitely a candidate to win there. I, I think people prefer it when a new uh, world number one is a Grand Slam champion. I, I think it adds adds to it that uh, to the belief that yes, you absolutely deserve it and and while Naomi Osaka had had some dips in form, it's not like it was 
sort of disastrous or anything. She was still winning matches. So it was really Barty who who took the world number one uh, with her fantastic play. Uh, but yeah, where do you even start uh, with Wimbledon on the women's side? Uh, Angelique Kerber, defending champion. Yeah, I guess you go with the defending champion first. Yeah. You have to start there, yeah. right? You, uh, you know, she's done it before. And even this week, not a bad uh, week for her either, going out to Benchich in, in three sets. Yeah, and played pretty well. Honestly. Kerber knocked off Sharapova in the second round, 6 2 6 3, a returning Maria Sharapova. Nice to see her back on court. I don't know how much you know stock I put in her right now, just she hasn't had the matches, but uh, still on a grass court, Sharapova is going to be difficult at, at any time. Yeah. Kerber beats Caroline Garcia as well, who's been playing better lately. So, yeah, you got to put Kerber in the mix, I think for sure. Belief in herself, done it before. Um, who else are we going to put up there? I uh, like uh, I like Johanna Conta actually. The way she's been playing lately, exactly, and the fact that she's made the semis at Wimbledon before. Yep. And and my goodness, that was back in 2017, and then what a slide from Conta to now rediscover her game and rediscover it on the clay over in Europe was was surprising to me. But mm-hmm. between Rome and then uh, obviously the French Open, fantastic events that got her back to believing in herself. And I would imagine that'll carry over to Wimbledon as well. Uh, Petra Kvitova, if she's yes. healthy. Uh, definitely up there. I, I would say, you know, pre-tournament, if I'm going to pick and hopefully not jinx anyone, I'd, I'd probably go with her just based on how much success she's had in in tournaments, uh, you know, outside of the slams. Made the finals, though, at the Aussie Open this year, too. I feel like she's getting closer to hoisting another slam, and, well, Wimbledon wouldn't be a stretch for her, would it, right? No, not at all. 2011 and the uh, 2014 champion, of course, when, we beat, when she beat uh, Jeannie Bouchard there in the final. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel like her game... Her talent is just too strong to not add one more Grand Slam title to the resume before things are said and done. It feels like she's an older player on the tour, and then you take a look and you're like, well, she's, she's, only, not really. she's only 29 years old. Right? She's not, you know... I'd a, love to be 29 years old again. <laughs> uh, yes, wouldn't we all? Well, it's okay. I'm, I'm only 30. I can't say that. That's not fair. <laughs> now, another 30-year-old we got to mention, though, is uh, Serena Williams, because I feel like last year she made it to the finals with very little match play under her belt really going in, you know, just only months back into her comeback and made it to the finals. And I feel like uh, why couldn't she do that again, even though the health question marks are still there? Haven't seen too much of her practicing a little clip the other day, but she seemed to be pretty much standing still and just returning the balls that were hit directly to her. So not sure how the mobility and the movement is still, but uh, if she's healthy, immediate threat of course yeah certainly uh, an immediate threat if she's playing and feeling well last year was such a strange year on the women's side with so many upsets we had basically the top 10 of seeds almost collapse on itself and suddenly we had Serena in the final and then falling to Angelique Kerber uh, it's going to be a fascinating Grand Slam uh, don't even know where to start uh, in terms of who could win but uh, we're trying to pinpoint some names here at least we can't throw out any Canadian names though really can we on the women's side? Well, uh, this was the news that, that came down uh, today, this Monday, is uh, Bianca Andreescu still rehabbing, recovering her shoulder, uh, has pulled out of Wimbledon. Uh, Maybe not that it was a Grand Slam that I had immense expectation for her, but I think fans here in the country are just eager to see her back on the court playing as much as she was playing uh, back in the early months of 2019. Uh that maybe was a bit of the problem. She was playing week after week, match after match, and too much fatigue, and that right shoulder just needs the rest and rehabilitation. And I I think right now, 
Uh, if I'm projecting her return, I hope it's just Rogers Cup, honestly. Yeah, for Bianca, it was way too much tennis, but but not for bad reasons, or not because she kept entering tournaments, losing, entering more tournaments. She just kept winning. She just kept winning everywhere she was going. She had such a crazy record yep. to start the season that, of course, she had to keep going. But after that Indian Wells victory, I really think it would have been prudent to put the brakes on and say, okay, maybe Miami, not such a great idea. Yes. And that, I think, really set her back. Uh, when she spoke with us on Matchpoint Canada, you know, a couple of months ago, not quite two months ago, she was saying that what doctors predicted would be an eight-week recovery only took her four and a half, but clearly she wasn't really fully recovered, even if it looked like it on the outside, uh, because the shoulder injury obviously was was re-aggravated. So I think it's smart. Just skip the grass court season. Don't rush to come back. You've got so many more Wimbledon opportunities in your future yeah. to be able to go into hopefully healthy. Don't risk, you know, short-term uh, reward for the big picture here in 2019. And yeah, we want to see her back healthy for the hardcourt swing. And obviously at the Rogers cup, uh, you know, fans here in Toronto are going to be super excited. This will be the first time where she is undoubtedly going to be the face of the tournament yes. plastered on the Aviva center and all over the grounds, all over Toronto and rightly so. And you don't want to do that if you don't have her healthy and playing in the tournament. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I, I think it's certainly doable for her return there. Uh, you look at the timeline here about a little less than six weeks until we'll have Rogers cup in Toronto and also native of Mississauga. Uh, you know, we want to pack the stands and support Bianca here, uh, in our great city. And I, I think, uh, she is keen to make the return there. I think she's making the right decision not playing Wimbledon. It's a shame that she came back on the clay and that French Open match that she played in the first round ended up being so long and physical, uh, three hours. But part of that rehab process needs to be preparing you for anything that can come, which is a, a long, uh, tough physical match like that that she played. Yeah, and, and we wish her all the best in her recovery. I think this is more sort of preventative and precautionary yeah, uh, well, that's what I'm hoping. I, I'm sure she could be coming back and playing it if she wants, but it just doesn't make sense. So yeah. being prudent. Uh, so that leaves us with, you know, Gabby Dabrowski, obviously in doubles mm. uh, at Wimbledon, who will be a, a, a big time uh, threat and one of the top seeds. Yep. And uh, in terms of singles, she's playing in the tournament, but expectations are, are back to being, you know, sort of all time low. Unfortunately, I feel like for uh, for Jeannie Bouchard. Yeah, so uh, she obviously took a bad result uh, this past week. 6-2, 6-love to Fiona Farrow, uh, probably a name most people on this program have never heard before. Uh, so Jeannie Bouchard has really dipped out of form uh, the past you know couple months. Obviously, I know, I know we had that lengthy injury layoff, uh, but didn't go anywhere on the clay, didn't do anything at the French in terms of success. Uh, she did have that sort of motivational kind of tweet after she lost early in the first round of the French Open and saying how excited she was to be back on the court. She seemed to be uh, giving off positive vibes, a good spirit about the whole thing. So kind of surprising, um, not surprising that she lost her first match on grass, but in the fashion that she did, 6-2, 6-love. I don't know if she was ready yet for competition, but uh, Jeannie Bouchard the past few months, it's been a downhill spiral, and uh, I hope she can show us some glimpses, but uh, there's not going to be much of any expectation at Wimbledon 2019. If it makes Jeannie Bouchard or her fans feel any better, uh, Farrell went on to beat uh, Daria Gavrilova 6-3-6 love in her next match there. So (laughs) I wouldn't have expected that one either, to be honest. Um, But uh, yeah, it's been a tough go for Jeannie. Obviously, and I think it's, you know, it's almost to her detriment. There's so much on her social media 
you know, that makes people question, well, how much time are you putting into the tennis? Yeah. Now, is that just because she's sharing more than other players, sharing more of her own life, which is her decision, which mm. is letting her fans in on, you know, the big picture? Other players don't show as much. If they did, would people be looking at them and thinking, well, hey, wait a minute, are you putting enough time into the tennis? Maybe they just hold that back, where Jeannie is just like an open book. Hey, here's my life. I want to invite you in. And, and she gets a lot of flack for that. But you wonder if she's, you know, putting in enough time, practice court-wise, uh, figuring out who the next coach is going to be to hopefully give a little bit more structure and and someone to sort of, you know, have some guidance and, and to lean on, you know, moving moving through the year on the tour. Um so it's it's just a tough one to figure out. Yeah. And and you wonder, you know, even the abdominal injury, is she even able to train at 100% in between events right now? What's her, you know, uh, health status truly? It's it's hard to know. But, yeah, expectations for someone who made the finals five years ago, five long years ago for Jeannie Bouchard, are, are going to be pretty low coming into the All England Club this year. Yeah, as you point out, five long years ago. Uh, 2014 seems like a far cry off for Jeannie Bouchard when she got to world number five, couple semifinals, a final at Grand Slam events, beating all these top players, playing with the very best. Um I, I don't want to make a doomsday. You know, she's still she's still actually inside the top eighty. That's that's a, I guess a bit of a blessing in disguise. You know, last year this time at Wimbledon, she had to play her way through qualifying, uh, which she successfully did. So that seemed like a step in the direction. Every time we've seen you know brief stints of kind of building blocks for Jeannie Bouchard, we seem to get another setback. Step backwards, yeah. yeah and if so. she doesn't start getting some points at some time in this season it's going to be back to having to qualify at the slams again, right? Yes, yes, and that's uh, something we want to avoid. But, uh, you know, I, I hope she enters the All-England Club free of expectation because uh, we don't have it on her right now because uh, the form hasn't been there. Maybe she can surprise us when, with a win or two. Maybe she'll get a favorable draw. Who knows? Uh, unfortunately, another guest of ours, Rebecca Marino, uh, on the podcast, uh, you know, I think over a month ago, uh, she's also going to miss Wimbledon uh, with injury. What is it with the injuries right now? I don't know, but I you know, we can't have all the success, Canada, and not have some, you know, challenges put in front of us, too. So yeah. maybe we're just being, ten- you know, detested by the uh, the tennis gods that be in terms of, hey, you've had a lot of success this year. We're going to have to throw something at you, I guess, <laughs> to try and, like, level the playing field. That's true. Uh, one, I suppose, good piece of news. Braden Schnurr winning his first match in Wimbledon qualifying. He's in qualifying there. So is Canadian Steven Diaz. So uh, we wish the best for the both of them. Uh, it would be great to see one of those get through to the main draw. I guess we will wrap up our episode with uh, a Rogers Cup ticket giveaway because I know we were hyping it up all over our social media channel at Matchpoint Can. And uh, we have a draw set and we have a winner uh, to announce for our Tuesday, August 6th evening session. Yeah, this is going to be a big one because if healthy, knock on wood, this will be Bianca Andreescu's first match of the tournament on center court. And so uh, congratulations to this uh, session. You got two tickets coming your way. Ryan on Twitter at Ed Dan Lowe. We will be in touch about that. And we've got plenty more tickets to give away in the upcoming weeks. I believe we're six weeks out from the Rogers Cup, as you mentioned. And so we've got a a few more pairs of tickets. We've got a pair of tickets at some point. We're going to dangle for the uh, Coupe Rogers in Montreal as well. But uh, this week, we've got uh, two more for Toronto, the women's tournament here in Toronto, Wednesday, August 7th, daytime tickets. And uh, how do we want? Let's do something a little different this week. Sure. Let's uh, let's say this week to enter in the draw, tweet us at Match Point Can 
your favorite Rogers Cup memory. It could be something you saw in person. It could be, you know, watching a match on TV or just following along. What is your favorite memory from the Rogers Cup, either in Montreal or Toronto, to qualify for our next draw that we will pull tickets for, uh, pull your name for next week? There you go. Maybe you got an autograph from a player, uh, a signed tennis ball at some point uh, years past. Uh, tweet us out at MatchPointCan with, uh, as Mike said, your favorite memory, and we will do that draw next week uh, as we get all set for Wimbledon. Unbelievably close. Uh, it's such a quick turnaround from the clay to the grass. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Back for the French Open, Wimbledon, back-to-back within a month. Yep. Sustain everyone's interest, and, <laughs> and then off to the hard courts. Exactly. Uh, the tournament starting on Canada Day, July 1st. We will speak to you next time. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Hey.